0: Snack production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. In this episode, we're talking about the UN, the United Nations, the, the, the organisation that is the godfather of the world, many would <laughs> see it as. But you know, it's funny, Keith, actually, just before we get into it, I've had discussions with people, more, they tend to be more on the right of politics, who will question what the point of the UN even is. But yeah. we are going to talk about the point of the UN today and the future of the mm. UN. And, of course, Keith, uh, the face of uh, Channel 7's Sunrise and Channel 7's international politics commentary team because we've got three PhDs and we brag about this every time on the show, <laughs> he's very, very well qualified. There is no one more qualified to be talking about international politics than Dr. Keith Souter. So let's get into this. The UN, I mean, I think it's it serves a vast purpose king.
1: Yeah, it is. So the the essence of the UN, three things. One is that it brings countries together. So you've got political, economic and social cooperation. So if the UN did not exist today, it would be necessary to invent it. So much of the UN's work goes in economic and social cooperation, such as the debate over climate change or monitoring of weather, the fact that we can broadcast at all, that's the International Telecommunications Union. You post a letter. To your friends overseas, that's the Universal Postal Union. So the UN does work each day, all day, every day, which we take for granted. And even the people who criticise the UN usually don't talk about or don't criticise that economic and social cooperation. It has to go on. Unless you want to live alone on a desert island, fine, but just hope you don't have climate change and the, war <laughs> and the sea rises up mm-hmm. over your island, okay? That's one way. You bring the countries together. Sometimes... Secondly, it's necessary to keep countries apart, which is why you have peacekeeping operations. And Australia has been involved in those peacekeeping operations right from the outset. Now, the reason we have peacekeeping operations is that the machinery which is laid down in the UN Charter has never been implemented. So the UN actually has its own military force, it's in the UN Charter, it's never been used. So Winston Churchill, one of the architects of the UN back in 1945, in the 1930s was talking about an international air force. So that idea was carried over into the UN charter, but the system has never worked. The Americans and the Russians fell out. We had the Cold War, et cetera. Uh, so we have these ad hoc measures, peacekeeping operations, which, as I say, Australia has been involved in right from the very beginning, involved in these peacekeeping operations. And then thirdly, the UN provides leadership into the future. So, for example, it talks about international conferences. We have international days, etc. One of the my favourite examples of the UN's work in terms of changing people's perception was International Year of Disabled Persons. 1981, I was a member of the um, Australian Government Committee for that year. In that year, we had the Australian premiere of a movie called Coming Home with Jane Fonda and a couple of other male beefcakes from Hollywood. It was about people who'd been injured in Vietnam coming home with disabilities. The premiere of the movie was done in a Melbourne cinema which was not accessible to people in wheelchairs. No. (laughs) And when the point was made to the manager, he said, oh, no one's ever pointed out that we've got a problem with this. You would never get that argument today. And one of the reasons for this, of course, has been the mobilisation of people with disability and they've been inspired to do that because of the UN's work. So you've got the UN bringing countries together, sometimes having to keep countries apart, and then thirdly leading them on. Mm-hmm. you know, into a world, in this case, with uh, greater respect for people with disabilities. So the UN is very small. It's not a world government. When I do talk back radio, I get people ring in, talking about the UN as a world government. You've just referred to it, what, as the godfather or whatever. <laughs> the Premier of New South Wales has more staff than the UN Secretary-General. What? Exactly. Or Disneyland. Disneyland has more staff than the UN Secretary-General. It is not a large... Organization or an expensive organization. It costs Australians probably about a dollar a year per Australian. It's not an expensive organization at all. It's a very, very cheap, very small organization. And a lot of people work for the UN in, in terms of a, a specialist committees, expert committees in a, a private capacity. They don't get received fees for it. They get an air, maybe get an air ticket, but that's it. So, um, And I've been involved, obviously, in UN work for decades now, so I obviously think that the UN is the way that we've got to go. The alternative would be to see what we're seeing now with the rise of strong authoritarian leaders who are saying, let's put America first, which was the slogan of America in the mm-hmm. 1930s, or let's put Boliv- um, uh, Brazil first or Turkey first. The problem is they're then return back to the 1920s and 1930s when you have countries competing with each other and you then end up with World War II. Mm. So you've got to bring countries together rather than just relying on these nationalist leaders. We so, don't seem to learn from history. So diplomacy
0: is incredibly important and yet, ironically, you've got someone like Donald Trump in the US.
1: Or Bolsonaro in Brazil, Erdogan in Turkey, and even in Australia. You know, you've know, got people who say, we don't like the UN, we don't have international cooperation. It's a mindset which says it's got to be everyone for themselves. Don't work with others. But why would you ever
0: do that? That doesn't make any sense.
1: Well, it may not to you, but I tell you there are a lot of people who are just saying you look out for number one. You can't rely on other people. Those are damaged people. Well, I won't make any comments like that. I'll leave the editorial <laughs> remarks to you. But I just simply say that you, you do have people who think like that. Now, we're now in the countdown for the 75th anniversary of the UN. So the UN turns 75 on October 24 next year, 2020. And so a number of us involved with projects to try to reaffirm the importance to re-educate people, because the UN is now older than most of the people on this planet, So most people cannot remember a time when the UN did not exist. So the people like Winston Churchill, who'd lived through the tragedy of two world wars and helped create the UN, those people have disappeared from the scene. And so we've got a whole new generation that are coming along that have always assumed the UN's there. They take it for granted and they're not making the most use of it. And so that's why I've been involved in trying to stimulate discussion about four possible futures for the UN. And so perhaps we might just run through those four scenarios. Please. Yep. So the first scenario is what I call steady state. So in this one, we're looking into the future. Remember, these are scenarios. They're not predictions. They're examples of getting people to think outside their comfort zone. So in this first scenario, steady state, national governments remain in control of their destiny and they're unwilling to work together on common problems, which is what we've just been talking about. And so despite all the talk of global governance, the basic nation state structure remains in place. And the argument is, well, this may have problems, but at least let's stick with what we know. Let's not risk greater international cooperation, etc. So that is one scenario, what I call steady state. It's basically where we are at the moment. It's what you would find in the minds of most politicians. And they think that somehow the world can continue with this competition between 200 nation states. The second scenario is what I call world state, a phrase that comes from H.G. Wells. Remember, he was the one in World War I who said that World War I was the war to end war. Mm. He got that one wrong. Mm-hmm. He talked about, the, uh, in one of his novels, the creation of a world state. So in this one, national governments, while they remain in control of their destiny, are willing to work together through the UN on common problems. And this evolves gradually into some form of global governance. There are a number of ways in which we could get to that. One is called the Federalist Approach, which is the deliberate decision by national governments to transfer certain powers deliberately to the UN. So that's one way. A second one is called a functionalist approach, which is the creation of more global agencies, such as the World Health Organization, to handle a particular function. Mm -hmm. So political cooperation means that you get politicians who are involved and they approach every issue with an open mouth. Whereas if you're going for functional cooperation, at the technical level, the scientists arrive without any political agenda. They're there to solve a common problem, such as how do you clean up the Mediterranean? The Mediterranean, muck in the Mediterranean, just keeps going around the Mediterranean in a particular direction, right? So the UN Environment Program created a program of cooperation between countries surrounding the Mediterranean. Don't forget, some of those countries have been fighting each other for two or 3,000 years. Israel is involved mm. with the Arab states. Yeah, Greece, Turkey. They all realise if they don't work together, they're going to. Per- if they don't work together, they'll be perishing together. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what's called a functional approach. You bring people together not to discuss politics, but simply how do we solve the problem of pollution? In this case, the problem within the Mediterranean. Another example is the eradication of polio, um, which is um, on the way out. We're down to four countries in the world within the Islamic world. Unfortunately, four countries that have got polio. We've already got rid of smallpox. So we are eradicating entire diseases. The the smallpox campaign was suggested by the Russians and was overseen by an American. That's an example Mm. of functional cooperation. So you just simply have more and more functional cooperation. The third one is what's called the populist approach, which is the creation of grassroots people's movements to establish some sort of democratic world government. We, We don't know how that would be. You've got populism at the moment on the right, but you could also end up with populism on the left. People working through the World Federalist Movement, which I've been a member for some decades, United Nations Association, et cetera. We don't know how we're going to do it. But that second scenario is the world state scenario, where somehow we move towards some sort of system of, of global governance. Now, the question will be, do we do this before the next tragedy or afterwards? If you look back at the UN well, if you look back at the League of Nations, that was created as a result of World War I. The UN was created as a result of World War II. What do we get out of World War III? Do we get another organisation, a better one? Each, each attempt is better than the previous one, but do we survive World War III? Can we do it without a World War III? These are the issues that we just don't know.
0: This is Global Truth. With Dr Keith Souter, we're talking about the UN and the future of the United Nations and what good it does the world right now in its current state. What are the greatest criticisms,
1: Keith? The greatest criticism is that it's simply not effective. And the reason it's not effective is the governments don't put enough resources into it. As I say, it's a very cheap organisation. It's a very small organisation. It has an image totally out of keeping with the reality. So that is that is the basic problem, which is why we focus on global governance as a way of putting more resources into the UN. Uh, for example, just paying your membership dues on time. At one point, only seven countries in the world had paid their membership dues on time. Australia was one of the magnificent seven. Britain, going all the way back to the League of Nations, always pays a year in advance. I, I think the reason that has been given for this British habit is that the first treasurer... Of the League of Nations was British, so he got the British government 90 years ago to get in the habit of paying to avoid embarrassment for the UK because that was the uh, the treasurer's concern. So we don't we don't get governments paying on time. The United States is usually in default. Russia is in default. So. We have real problems there that the UN is not taking seriously. And so that second scenario that we just looked at looks as a more optimistic one, I think, about trying to move towards global governance. But a third scenario is just simply that the UN continues to lack the money, national governments are losing control, and you end up with the transnational corporations running the earth. So the third scenario is what I call earth incorporated. So in other words, it becomes uh, the earth is run by business for business. So, as I say, the UN is in decline. The nation state system is simply overwhelmed by transnational corporations. Now, national governments will not necessarily disappear under this scenario any more than the rise of national governments caused the uh, local government to disappear. You know, the City of London Corporation goes back, I think, 700 years. So, it existed before there was a country called England or before there was the United Kingdom. But it still exists. And the same thing could happen with Earth Incorporated. You still have national governments. You may still have the UN. But the real driving power will be the transnational corporations. So it's a question of when the corporations rule the world. Now, they won't do it in terms of a a deliberate attempt, you know, to create their own cabinet and cooperation between corporations because they're often feuding with each other. Hmm. But what it will mean is that money becomes a measure of all things and basically the world is just a giant place for resource exploitation. Humans are subject to exploitation. Everything revolves around money. And so we see the gradual reduction of power of national governments and the UN and corporations will rule the roost. That's the third scenario when corporations rule the world. And the fourth scenario, because when you do scenario planning, you produce either two or four scenarios. You never do three. Because if you do three, the client will always go for the middle one, which is the least threatening. See, the purpose of scenario planning is to get people out of their comfort zone and get them to start thinking about the unthinkable. So that's what I've tried to do with these scenarios. So the first one is um, steady state, which nonetheless still has its own problems. The second one is that we do end up with some sort of of world government and uh, where we get greater co- cooperation between all the various components. The third one is when the UN fails, national governments fail, and we end up with corporations just saying, well, this is the Wild West, We're here to make as much money as we can. So corporations then rule the world, not laying down rules, et cetera, but just treating as a wide open space, a new prairie which Mm. they can exploit for their own benefit. The fourth scenario is what I call wild state. So national governments lose control over their countries. The United Nations cannot fill the governance vacuum, and so there is increasing chaos. The transnational corporations are there to make money, but they're not there to run countries. So this is the nightmare scenario in which the nation states fall apart. There's an increase in what are called failed states. Um, If you look at somewhere like Somalia, it hasn't had a government for 20 years. That's a failed state. You've got mass movements of peoples and we're just at the beginning of that new era. So this is not people trafficking that we've looked at, but this is large numbers of people who move from one country to another, like the asylum seekers that moved from Syria into Germany mm. or the people who are moving from Central and South America into the United States. This is what's called the mass movements of peoples and you have increased environmental and health problems and climate disasters. So the, the quality of life... Uh, it just gets worse and worse. The argument with this scenario is that the previous three scenarios that I've summarised are all too optimistic. <laughs> they focus too much on order rather than disorder. Each country will have to do the best that it can with what it has because it will not be able to rely on anyone else for much assistance. So we will see a world where, and certainly when I talk, it's interesting, I talk to environmentalists. So, you know, They talk about climate change and the nightmares that arise with climate change. I talk to conservative religious figures in the area of Christianity and Judaism. I don't mix too much with conservative Muslims, but they're also thinking about a world which is on the verge of collapse. You talk to some financial experts who are talking now about the economies of the world just grinding to a halt. We're no longer able to push along the economic rate of growth that we enjoyed after World War II. So everywhere I go, in all these different communities... I'm coming across people who are beginning to resonate with this sort of world state scenario. Hmm. You know, you look at that young Anita Thornburg, for example, and her description of the future of the world because of climate change. I think she'll probably end up getting a Nobel Peace Prize at some point for mobilising school children to leave school to campaign on climate change. Or you've got the Extinction Rebellion, which is a somewhat different type of, of action, um, much more aggressive than the young Swedish schoolgirl. But again, it's always disaster, foreshadowing of disaster, which is what their four scenario is about, environmental disaster, health disasters. You talk to the medical fraternity and you get people who say, we're due ready for another pandemic, Remember, we had the flu pandemic mm. after World War I, which killed more people than the total number of people killed in World War I. So are we going to have another pandemic of some sort, this giant epidemic which wipes people out? Mm. So for me it's fascinating, as I do moving around on the conference speaking circuit, mixing with a variety of people and getting a variety of perspectives, but so much of them seem to go back to that wild state. Deep in people's bones there's gloom about the future of the world. I don't share that. My view is it's better to light a candle than to curse the darkness. Uh, but I'm nonetheless, I have to expose myself to these other points of view. You've got to get out of your comfort zone. Of course. And you've got to understand what how other people are thinking and how they fear about the evolution of the world. So my view is that in this lead up to the UN and the 75th anniversary, we should be saying to people, these are four scenarios of how the world could evolve. They're not predictions. It's possible futures. We've got to try to work out, can we augment the UN to try to avert some of the disasters to which people are referring?
0: It it does sound doom and gloom, which is... um... Not the greatest, Keith. Not the most uplifting of uh, global truths, but practical nonetheless. Practical.
1: You've got to confront the future. And it's only by realising that we're in a bad situation you can then start to work towards like the reorganisation of the UN, the expansion of it, and making progress in global governance. And not just to be lulled along into thinking, well, we can take things easy. You know, when you look at what goes on here in Australia, of the top 20 TV programmes, 17 are on sport and three are on cooking. We are in a state of denial because we do not want to confront the future. So what I'm trying to do in this podcast series is encouraging people to confront the future and be aware of the problems and opportunities that are arising.
0: Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.